Karyalaka might sound like the name of a talk show host, but that's not it. Karyalaka is a bug, a member of the Lack family. It's the only bug that gives its life to create something that almost all of us eat on a regular basis. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about the mileage on your Prius and the bugs you're eating. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Akimbo's small business workshop is back. It's back because it works. Find out what you're missing. Find out how to work it better. Find out the path forward. Here's my friend Ramon Ray to tell you about it. In this workshop, you'll learn what you need to start and grow your business. Students have told us that the workshop helped them think and rethink their assumptions about small business success. Students said they no longer felt alone in growing their business. Listen, we know owning a business has a lot of challenges. And in the Small Business Workshop, we give you the framework to help you make the choices you need to make to overcome these challenges. I can't wait to see you in the Akimbo Small Business Workshop. Find out more at akimbo.com go. Hope to see you there. So, if you've ever swallowed a shiny pill, if you've ever had a milk dud, or maybe even a junior mint. What are you eating? Junior mint. You want one? No. You've been eating a lac bug. Specifically, you've been eating the feces of a lac bug, because what the lac bug does is it lives on the branches of trees, often in Thailand, and eats its sap and then leaves behind something all over the branches as it turns into a cocooned insect. We then take those branches, scrape off the gunk, denature some alcohol, mix it together, and we end up with pharmaceutical-grade glaze. That glaze ends up getting put on lots of things that we eat, and most of us would rather not know about it. And now that you do know about it, it's entirely likely that the next time you have a headache, you will still take a shiny pill. Because if you think about it, we eat bugs and things related to bugs all the time. The question is, why isn't that written in big letters on the side of the box of milk duds? Then consider the problem that they had when they launched the Prius. A whole bunch of years ago when the Prius came out, it was the first modern hybrid car. It has a battery. It also has a gas tank and it is capable of getting far more mileage than any other car of its size. How to figure out its mileage? Well, there's a lot of rules in the United States about how to figure out the mileage of a car. Because if you think about it, the mileage of a car that's going 100 miles an hour is different than the mileage of a car that's going downhill at 30. But we came up with a bunch of rules, and the car companies are supposed to follow them. But the rules didn't apply to the Prius. The other thing about the Prius is right there on the dashboard with a digital readout is your current mileage, which means when you're going downhill, it had a round off because your current mileage dividing by zero was infinity. Regardless, you could see the mileage go up and go down. And so when the Prius first came out, they told people the mileage was, I think, something like 48 miles per gallon. But if you drove the car like the hot rodder that you and I might want to be, you weren't seeing anything close to that, 30 or 40 miles per gallon. 
On the other hand, if you decided to become a hypermiler, if you waited till conditions were good, put extra air in the tires, you could go on a round trip and average 80 or more miles per gallon. There was no correct answer. There was simply a method. And the marketers at Prius had to make a choice. The choice is, should they say up to 80 miles per gallon? Should they give you a number that makes you feel like you're within striking distance? Is their goal to tell the complete and total truth of what your mileage will be when that is an unknown? Or is it to create something that gives you peace of mind and lets you go forward happy that you bought this item? Compare this to the emissions scandal that Volkswagen put itself in. Discovered in 2015 in the U.S. by the EPA, it was shown that 11 million cars were deliberately programmed by Volkswagen so that when they were going through emissions testing, they would look like they were behaving well. But once the car realized it was no longer in a testing mode, it would do as badly as 40 times the accepted level of pollution. When people heard about this, they were stunned, annoyed, and shocked because Volkswagen was deliberately hiding, lying, and subverting rules that clearly applied to them. Marketers have to make choices all the time, and commercial speech is not the same as free speech. If we think about who's in the movies, well, there are makeup artists. What exactly do makeup artists do? Is it lying for a movie to use a stunt double when it's not really the star putting themselves on the line? Is it better when Tom Cruise does his own stunts, breaking his leg while trying to make a movie? Or is it lying when they make Tom Cruise look taller than he actually is in a movie? When you see a celebrity before they've been photoshopped for the cover of a magazine, is it disappointing to you that the cover doesn't match? Because after all, they're lying. They know what the celebrity looks like. And the person who's on the cover or the person who's in the movie doesn't look like the person you're going to see if you go out for breakfast and bump into them at the diner. So what does it mean for a marketer to show up and tell us what we need to hear? Exactly 100 years ago, H. Armstrong Roberts invented the stock photo. Before that, if a marketer or a news organization wanted to use a photograph, they had to hire a photographer and at great expense get the photograph. But what Roberts figured out is that if he could just assemble a bunch of people in front of a plane that was about to make history and take a picture, he could license that picture over and over again. And so stock photography was born. Stock photography began as a way for news organizations to pool resources and use the same picture over and over again. But it was quickly discovered that there was a lot of money to be made licensing photos to marketers who wanted to use a picture that they didn't have to organize themselves. And today, we know a stock photo when we see it. We know that those five people standing around in front of a computer, all perfectly representing the culture we would like to be part of, shiny and bright, pointing at something, well, those aren't real customers of the company, and that's not really their computer, and those people probably aren't friends. And yet, just like makeup in the movies or someone else doing the stunts, we accept this, that stock photography has become part of our vocabulary. 
And the question is, when does it cross the line and stop being, oh yeah, that's a stock photo. Oh yeah, they're putting makeup on that actor and instead become something like the VW emissions scandal. Is there a line? Where do we draw the line? Commercial speech is not the same as free speech. One of the reasons is that commercial speech can be amplified by money again and again in ways we don't expect. So let me tell you about my first day of work back in 1983 as a summer intern. The morning was a little rough. They weren't expecting me. They had forgotten to tell the others that I was coming. And in the afternoon, they say, come on, Seth, we're going to Cabot Advertising. We're going to be reviewing the ads they've put together for our first nationwide ad campaign. Spinnaker was a tiny company. Only 30 people were there at that time, but they had raised millions of dollars and they were prepared to spend it. People Magazine, national ads, the whole thing. We were the pioneers of well-produced, well-packaged computer games for kids, educational games, things like Fraction Fever or Kids on Keys, software you could happily let a seven-year-old use on a Commodore 64. And the plan was Kmart, Target, Leechmere, giant big box stores selling our stuff in quantity. And so, the first ad. So I get there, and here's the debate. The debate is, should the ad show two parents and their daughter, or two parents and their son? And everyone looked to me, because I was the youngest and the one that was the easiest to get to talk first. Which one do you like better? And before I gave my answer, I didn't really think deeply about the fact that if you're pioneering advertising and a market, well, if you start modeling that this is something for young boys, then you're going to change the culture because young girls are less likely to use it. Not to mention the whole idea of gender fluidity, which in 1983 was hardly ever spoken of. But here we were making this commercial speech decision that was going to change the culture. And organizations have been doing it since long before 1983 and continue to do it to this day. What do we model? What story do we tell? What ingredients do we talk about and which ones don't we talk about? What does it mean to say what's going to happen downstream to this packaging? Is it just going to get ignored or are we going to build an entire business around it? That what they've done at Patagonia is stunning. That Patagonia has decided that instead of compromising their way forward to get bigger, they would walk away from compromise and try to actually do business in a way that makes things better, to tell stories in a way that help people see the world a bit differently, to invest their profits in lobbying to do things like save a canyon. If you've ever bought a can of soup, you've probably seen the picture of the soup on the label. And every picture of soup that doesn't show a flat, featureless pool of liquid is faked. It's faked because there's enough liquid in the can for all the ingredients to drop to the bottom. It's a serving suggestion if you believe that having marbles in the bottom of your bowl is an appropriate way to eat soup. That if they fill a bowl with marbles and then put a can of soup on top of it, it will look just like that chunky soup in the picture. There are food stylists who are busy rearranging the sesame seeds on the top of a McDonald's Big Mac so when it's time for its photo shoot, it looks just right. Is that what we want, makeup for food? Well, the answer is yes, we do. The answer in this moment, as I am recording this, is that we punish marketers who put 
people in their ads who look like everyday people with no makeup, that we care a lot about the lighting that is used in the picture that is showing up in front of us. And so marketers have this interesting choice to make, which is, should they be telling a story of the world as they'd like it to be? When they are talking about the outcomes that come from attending their educational institution or taking their placebo, should they show us every single outcome? Because even that isn't the full truth. We don't know what's going to happen next. Should they show us the happy outcomes? Because modeling the happy outcomes makes it more likely that more happy outcomes will occur. Can that be done truthfully? What is it that the customer actually wants from companies that show up with commercial speech? One of the things to understand about capitalism and marketing is that capitalism is a really good listening device. That marketers spend an enormous amount of time paying attention to what's working, listening carefully for what people want, what they need, what they react to, how they take action. And so it's not okay to let a marketer off the hook when they say, well, I just gave the market what it wanted. Because yeah, there are people in the market who want you to sell them an addictive drug that will kill them, but that doesn't mean you should. At the same time, the market is speaking up. The market is making clear about what stories we want to hear and which ones we don't want to hear. More than ever before, a certain group of consumers is speaking up and saying, we want more transparency in the way you show up, in the way you act, in the way you tell us the truth about what you're doing and what you're not doing. But let's be really clear. Karyalaka is not going anywhere. It may skeeve you out to know that you've been eating the lack bug every single time you've eaten something that was supposed to put a smile on your face or get rid of a headache. And if enough people are upset about it, it's entirely possible that a corn-based substitute will gain traction. But in the meantime, we've been fooling ourselves, and we've been fooling ourselves on purpose. We like the shiny objects. We like the nice treats. We like to not know precisely where it was made, who made it, and what the repercussions are. But every once in a while, marketers are discovering that there are lines being drawn. If they're smart, they will embrace and welcome consistent government guidelines and regulations so they don't have to keep guessing about what they're supposed to do and what they're not supposed to do. It got a lot easier for Prius once there were actual rules about how to report the mileage of a hybrid car. Because guess what? Most marketers, most capitalists don't want to invent new rules. They'd like to win by following the existing rules. And so it's up to us to decide what those rules ought to be. Where are the boundaries? What will we decide we want to know? What will we decide we can't know? Because as we function in a modern industrialized economy, even the people who are saying they're getting off the grid aren't quite off the grid. Marketing delivers too many treats and too many smiles for people to walk completely away from it. So commercial speech is not free speech. If you've got money, you've got a choice about what to say and how to say it and how often to say it, and how loudly to say it. And when marketers speak, we change the culture. And it's up to us to decide how to change the culture and how to lead instead of just worrying about how to follow. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? 
What is the time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com slash go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. I want to share three questions this week. They're remarkably similar, but each one is different. So here we go. Hey, Seth. This is William Chernoff from Vancouver, Canada. I'm a young jazz musician. And my question is about the lazy concept of having only one number to measure and focusing on how to make that one number go up. When I first heard you mention this concept, I thought about Spotify. If you'd find me on Spotify, you'd see one number beneath my name, monthly listeners. I think it's nonsense that this number receives so much attention from both industry colleagues and everyday people. I can't get Spotify to stop showing this number so prominently. So my question is, what are some more qualitative metrics that I can look for to have a more sensible outlook on my jazz music career? Thank you for everything you do. Thank you, William. The key question is this. Which number are you measuring and why does it matter to you what other people are measuring? So to pick an absurd example, if Forbes magazine is measuring the richest people in the world and you're a billionaire, why does it make you sad, angry, disappointed, frustrated if you are mismeasured and they report you having $5 billion when you actually have 10? Why is it that people who have everything they could imagine when it comes to money get frustrated when the measurement that other people see doesn't align with how they want to be measured? Well, clearly what matters to them is not how much money they have, but where do they rank in the hierarchy. Now, if you're a jazz musician, you've got plenty of things that you could be keeping score of, keeping track of, paying attention to. If you want your numbers to go up on a place like Spotify, well, stop making jazz and start making pop, because pop, by definition, is more popular. No, that's not really the goal. The goal is to make music that matters to someone and to be able to do it in a sustainable way. So the number of streams you're getting is completely and totally irrelevant. Don't look at it. You don't need to look at it. And anyone who is looking at it doesn't have to matter to you. You don't have to decide to play a game with rules that you don't like. All too often, people who are doing the hard work of creation, of building something, would also like to be recognized by the masses for what they're doing. And almost every time, 
that's not the case, which is one reason why so few people stick with it long enough to get to the other side. Patricia Barber, the great jazz musician, sells out the Green Mill every Monday. There's only a hundred seats. That's enough. Decide what's enough and then focus on making the numbers that matter to you go up. Hey, Seth. It's Gregory with a question regarding lazy capitalism. What if a modern-day descendant of Semmelweis came along today with a new simple measure for ethical capitalism? One that takes not only the needs of shareholders into account, but the needs of all stakeholders. Who would you recommend as a starting point for the smallest viable audience? Would it be the business roundtable? The UN with their SDG goals? B Corporation folks or some activist group? If you were Semmelweis, who would the smallest viable audience be to you? Thank you for this, Gregory. You didn't describe your idea, which is fine with me. There's a real distinction between an idea that only works when everyone uses it or an idea that works when some people use it. The challenge that we have as creators, as inventors, as leaders is if we want to start with few resources, picking a project that only works when everyone uses it, that's really hard. Esperanto didn't catch on. So therefore, Esperanto is a failure because even if you know how to speak Esperanto, you're not going to bump into somebody who speaks Esperanto. Kio estas Esperanto? Zamenhof en la deknaua jarcento kreis tiun ĉi artefaritan lingvon, kiu estas mia denaska lingvo. It's really important if you want a language to catch on that you get lots and lots and lots of people to listen to it. On the other hand, if you want to sell handmade singing bowls from Tibet, you only need to sell 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 and you're done. So, the challenge that Semmelweis had was he wanted every doctor to save lives. Okay, but it works even if the doctors in just one hospital do it. If in just one hospital, the doctors all wash their hands, the women in that hospital aren't going to die. And Semmelweis's mistake was trying to get everyone to adopt his idea because he had the hubris and the arrogance of being right and he was impatient in the face of skeptics. If he had gone one hospital at a time, the smallest viable audience, the smallest group of people, once he had converted three or four or five hospitals, he probably could have flipped the whole city. And once he flipped a city, he could probably flip a country and then go on from there. So anytime you're thinking of going to the Business Roundtable or the United Nations, it's probable that you have skipped more than a few steps. Hi, Seth. This is Fred in the Santa Cruz Mountains. I'm doing a little catch-up on some of the back episodes and really appreciated your comment in response to a question about research, where you rec first recommended everybody, and I'm going to underline everybody, should understand statistics, and either take a course or learn it or use it. And that's been a big part of my role as a reliability engineer and statistician working with organizations. And my question, though is that if we do our job well, then there's not failures. And then you don't have to call uh, customer support to uh, return your product or, or repair it or whatever. Unfortunately, when that happens, 
there's no obvious reward. Uh, it all too often we run into situations where firefighting or staying up overnight or the weekend to solve some big issue uh, then becomes a hero and they get the rewards in the parking spot and so on. So it creates a dynamic where we don't necessarily re are recognized or rewarded for preventing problems, but those that then respond to flare-ups in, in the field of problems then get rewards. So it creates an unwanted dynamic. Any suggestions about how to break that kind of culture so that we can get onto the business of preventing problems and, uh, and, and rewarding the people that actually do that kind of work. Thanks for all you do and look forward to hearing your response. Thank you for this, Fred. And yes, there's a real emergency problem, just like the fire department has a problem justifying their budget if no houses are burning down. So the question is, what can we measure instead? What can you amplify instead? You've seen those construction sites with the big sign that says 212 days without an accident. Why would they put up a sign like that? Well, as the number keeps going up, the stakes get higher. No one wants to be the person that got that number to go back down to one. And what you can do with the work that you're doing that increases safety and resilience and security and reliability is figure out how to elevate other numbers to spread them, to increase the stakes as you go. How much shorter are the waits on hold? How many fewer calls are you getting? How much are warranty returns decreasing? How can you give people data that becomes an early warning sign so that when they stop paying attention, to the things that matter, they begin to notice right away, not when it's too late. Thanks for your questions. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere. You know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.